So hello and welcome to the Pioneers podcast for Agora. She currently holds three institutional positions as Chief Curator and Director of the Sheila C. Johnson Design Centre at Parsons School of Design, a Professor in the School of Media Studies at the New and Adjunct Curator of Digital Art at the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York City. Christiane curated a hugely influential show called Programmed Rules, Codes and Choreographies in Art 1965 to 2018 at the Whitney, and most recently a show exploring AI at Parsons titled the question of intelligence, where certain separate exhibits began to talk to one another. Christiane is a prominent champion of female digital artists, most recently ensuring the Whitney's acquisition of an AR piece by Tamika Teal, which we'll explore today, as well as software artworks by Claudia Hart and Rebecca Allen. Thank you so much for joining us, Christiane. Thanks so much for having me. So I thought that we could perhaps start with a brief history of digital art and its origins from your perspective. Yeah, it's, it's difficult to do a brief history because, in fact, it is quite a long history. You could say that digital art really started out in the 1960s when artists began to write their own code and create computer-based drawings. At the time, it was impossible to really render to the screen so what the artists created was basically drawn out by pen plotters. So these computer drawings are often seen as the origins of digital art. You could trace the art form for um, quite some time before then. Also often mentioned is the Jacalum created in 1801, which used basically uh, code in order to create textile weavings. And then, of course, we have those legendary predecessors and even women, such as Ada Lovelace, often named as the first programmer. It's debatable where you want to start, when you want to start. But from the 60s onwards, we have a consistent use of digital. In the creation of art, once again, starting out with early computer drawings, and then in the uh, 70s and 80s, Artists had much, much better tools at their hands. Virtual reality already started out in the 1960s, but we began to see more of that also in the late 80s and 90s. And then artists' tool set has really increased and been refined. And of course, with the World Wide Web in the 90s and then social media platforms and the whole evolution of the network, we have also seen different forms of artistic practice. So at the moment, we're at a sort of new period where digital art where it entered into public consciousness, and we'll discuss that a little bit later in uh, this podcast. This particular podcast is about how women can fit into this history of digital arts, especially in an industry which has 
is still to this day very male dominated. How do you feel that women artists have fit into this history of digital art? Women artists always played a very prominent role in digital art, but we have not necessarily been telling the history. I already mentioned Lady Ada Lovelace, who of course is often named as the really the first programmer working with Charles Babbage and laying the groundwork for a lot of what is possible uh, today. But then we also had really pioneering mathematicians and programmers. There was the recent film Hidden Figures, centering on some of them. Katherine Johnson would be one example. And then also uh, Grace Hopper needs to be mentioned in this uh, context, because she was one of the very early coders at a time when the first computers were really created. And I also want to note that women at the time were associated with software. It was men who were in control of or developing hardware and women were the software side. That, of course, would flip later on with seeing less and less women in computer sciences, etc. And I shouldn't say flip because it was not that women started working with hardware then, but the, the situation changed. So women always played a very prominent role, I think, in the development of computer technologies and then also in digital art. From the beginning, there are pioneers. I mentioned early computer drawings. Vera Molnar would be one of the women who started out early then, of course, Lillian Schwartz and Lynn Hirschman Leeson are some of the pioneers of the medium. So women were actually really integrated. How did you discover digital art? So you did you study art history? Did you see one in the gallery? How did you find a way into the field? It's kind of a zigzag route into digital art. But the path I have taken is one that many other people uh, took, as I learned later on. I actually studied literature, American literature to be specific, but I early on got into electronic reading and writing. So in the early 80s, you saw more interest in that. Apple's hypercard uh, came along. And so I started looking into that before there was a World Wide Web. And when the web came about, I got fully immersed. I was always interested in art in general. It was an unofficial second minor, but I never studied it. But when the web came about, I found it together with a colleague of mine at NYU, a magazine called Intelligent Agent on new media in arts and education. So this newsletter we founded became a quarterly magazine and more and more galleries and museums contacted us and asked about net art and digital art and asked for input on curation. And at some point I thought rather than consulting on this, I might as well curate myself since I obviously know a lot about this. And then the Whitney in 2000 approached me about the position of the adjunct curator of digital art. And that was my entry point in the art world, more traditional art world at large. Wow. So your Whitney position was your first position in, in a museum. 
Yes, it was. Incredible. And so now you're, you're still very involved in the acquisitions for the Whitney. And when you were thinking about an acquisition, how, how do you think about whether what digital artwork is a valuable asset for a museum and what's worth preserving and keeping in a collection? That's a great question. So I have my own acquisition committee at the Whitney right now. And the Whitney has collected digital art through different committees, but it was a little haphazardly. The works are all great, but they do not tell a history. So I identified basically two eras within the Whitney's collection where we really need to fill the gap. And that is the early history of digital arts, the types of computer drawings I just mentioned, and then also the history of the late 70s, 80s, and 90s, where we have a lot of gaps. And then, of course, we also need to pay attention to what is going on right now or has been happening since the 2000s. So the works we acquire are also partly driven by catching up with the history of digital art and bringing works that are really defining for certain moments into the collection. Of course, there's a lot to collect and a lot of worthy artwork to collect. But within a museum, you also always think about the story you want to tell through your collection. So that's definitely a major part of it. What story are you aiming to tell with the Whitney's collection? Well, basically, the story of the evolution of digital art and a story that is more inclusive than the one that may have been written in the past. Coming back to the uh, topic here of women, for example. So when I curated the programmed exhibition you mentioned in your generous introduction, we also realized that we had real gaps when it came to women in the collection, and we actually acquired Lynn Hirschman Leeson's Lorna at that point and brought it in and uh, showed it as part of the exhibition. Oh, so interesting. So let's talk about that piece. So the piece is called Lorna by Lynn Hirschman Leeson, and it was made between 1979 and 1984. Could you describe the work and, and tell us how it functions and why it's important? It's quite a complex work. So Lorna is also being credited as the first interactive laser disc artwork. There have been interactive laser discs before, but this is the first artwork that used that technology. And if you would walk into the gallery where Lorna is being shown, you would encounter an installation that basically looks like a living room with a television in it on which the story of Lorna unfolds. And the installation itself mirrors basically the room in which Lorna is sitting on the TV. And as you sit down in the chair in that living room, you can pick up a remote control and navigate the work. So Lorna functions like a computer game that you're navigating through a remote control and you're exploring a branching narrative that depending on how you navigate may have 
endings. So Lorna is an agoraphobic trapped in her apartment, which I guess really resonates with the current moment uh, in time. And depending on how you navigate, she might get uh, out of there, for example, or she smashes the television. One aspect about Lorna that also is very interesting is that it is a very feminist work in the sense that it comments on the role of women in a mediated environment and you're literally remote controlling the woman in that environment. So these issues of power and control are very much part of the work. And so the woman in the artwork is her? It's Lorna, yeah. And the remote control aspect, is it designed to be a comment on the I suppose, a woman in a domestic space that you can literally control in a sense that reminds me of like a sort of 50s sitcom or something where the man sits down and he turns on the controller and he has his dinner and the woman comes. Is it, that, is it supposed to be a play on that or is it supposed to be more empowering like she, you can take control of her narrative? It's both, actually. I don't want to suggest that this is a very literal allusion to women in media spaces. So on the one hand, yes, you are aware of the fact that you are remote controlling Lorna's fate. But on the other hand, she also resists that or reflects back what power and control in that uh, space mean. So it's basically making you think about those acts much, much more. And that's the interesting part of it. Another work you showed in the program show at the Whitney is Newtonian One by Lillian Schwartz, which was made in 1978. She brings physics and mathematics into the creation of this work of art. How does she do that? And why is this result so interesting and important? Lillian Schwartz really was a pioneer of creating kind of computer-driven visual animations. And she was groundbreaking in how she worked with forms and shapes in space and basically had them moving on uh, certain paths. So it's not like you're obviously thinking about mathematics and physics when you're looking at the work, but the underlying principles of this work are based in programming and in mathematics. And she was absolutely groundbreaking in making that kind of uh, visual possible. Because the overall effect is quite, it's almost quite overwhelming when you watch the, when when I watch the film online with the music and the colors, and it's like a fireworks display with the music and the colors and the sound. And I just, it really, to me, felt like the moment sometimes when you when you press your eyes and you get the fireworks, but then but much more exploded. And I was wondering, what effect do you think she was trying to generate? How did you, how do you reckon she wanted people to feel when they were experiencing this work? I'm not I'm not sure how she wanted people to feel, but she was very interested in exploring these relationships. So you mentioned the firework aspect, and some of her works and early computer animations really have these strobing effects, but not all of them. Some of them are also more contemplative. But I think that the potential of interactions between color and shape 
and sound were of real interest to her. And of course, there's history of animation in film, Oscar Fischinger, for example. But she really wanted to explore the potential of programming and computing in this space. It's a really interesting thing, these digital artists and their interaction with science. It's something I've been thinking about and about how it would be so fertile to have more interactions for artists at the development stage of their career to be able to meet scientists and actually have and develop deep understandings of, of maths and, science and, and physics and then allowing that to feed into their work. Yeah, it depends on the type of work you want to create and art science and art science intersections of course, have a long history in art too. And there's a certain area of artistic practice that really focuses on that. I think, it, I think it's got a, an interesting future in all of that. We'll see what happens. Um, yeah. There's a really interesting program I've just been following, uh, the Cavendish Art Sciences Centre in Cambridge. They're commissioning some works by artists. They're doing some fellowships and then introducing them to scientists in Cambridge. Yeah, that's great. The next edition of Pacific Standard Time, the exhibition series that's organized by the Getty Museum, is actually focused on art science. Ooh, I would definitely check that out. It sounds great. 2024. Okay, I'll wait a bit. A museum timelines. Okay, another work that's in the Whitney, or was it in the Whitney show, the Tamago Teal piece, or was it a, set, a different display when it was in on the balcony? It was in the, it was in the, in that show, yeah. And it was outdoors. It was in the, the sort of platform bit that the Whitney has. Indoors and uh, outdoors. Okay. And when I saw an image of it, it had an image of the AI. The iPad. Yeah. The iPads in the window. And then so you can frame it as both. Access was also provided indoors. But it is to be experienced technically outdoors on your own device. So it was made their way through the exhibition at the Whitney. And they found two iPads facing out of the windows onto the terrace outside of the museum where they could access this which created an amazing illusion of a coral reef floating in space. You then decided to acquire this piece for the Whitney's collection. Could you tell us a bit more about it and why you felt this piece was important and right for the Whitney? Well, the piece was actually given to us as a gift by one of the members of the Digital Art Acquisition Committee, Julie Walsh. And we thought that it was really, really an apt work to add to the collection because it was site-specifically created for the Whitney's terraces and is something that, of course, could be there, could live there forever and be uh, accessible there. And we also felt that it is a very important work in that it engages with climate change. So as you mentioned, it is this beautiful coral reef, but the reef is made entirely out of plastic and plastic pollutants. And the piece basically imagines the sixth floor terraces of the Whitney Museum underwater at some point in the future. So it's both beautiful and eerie and engages with questions that definitely won't go away, but become even more prominent. And once again, it was created specifically for that site. It's interesting that it plays into this fear of New York being underwater. It seems to be a sort of trope that you find in movies and 
I wonder where it comes from because it's exceedingly high, that terrace. It is rather safe, but there seems to be this, this New Yorker fear of one day becoming submerged. Depending on how bad it gets, definitely areas of New York City would be flooded and people buying houses are very much thinking about that, for example. Mm -hmm. And of course, we already had storms such as Sandy that really created a catastrophe. So I think that also has a lot to do with that uh, specific fear. Mm -hmm. It certainly wouldn't be the case that the sixth floor terraces <laughs> would be easily flooded, but the work just plays with that. So thank you for talking about all of these pieces that were in the Whitney show. It's really interesting and we invite all of you to look them up and we'll include links to them on the Agora page. Now onto a discussion about the future and ideas that we've all been thinking about with digital arts. Christian's perspective on this will be so interesting and I'm really curious to listen to your answers. So the first question I wanted to ask you was about the rise of the experience economy and it having hit public consciousness in the past years with four Van Gogh experiences here in the US and even more art world connected projects like Super Blue which is backed by Pace and is launching very soon in Miami with a giant installation by the Japanese art collective Team Lab. What effect do you think these large sort of public facing initiatives will have on digital arts? That's a really good question. And to be honest, it is one that I've been wondering about a lot and I don't have a definitive answer. But as you pointed out, we are moving more and more towards this kind of large-scale experiences that are absolutely dazzling and mind-blowing. And I'm sure that they will, in some way or another, compete with digital artwork that is much, much smaller, exists within a browser window or in an intimate installation. And of course, a lot of people will also be drawn to this kind of spectacle. So the big question for me really is uh, how much there will be a competition between the range of art that will be shown in galleries and museums or in these experience spaces. Another question is whether these experiences are more art or more design driven. You pointed to Superblue and they're, of course, connected to Pace Gallery and have a terrific curator, Kathleen Ford, and they are showing work from Team Lab to S. Devlin and many other artists who are really very well-known names within the field of digital art. But some of these experience uh, spaces do their own kind of installations. They hire programmers and designers. So it's a difficult landscape. And I can't really answer your question. It's an area that I'm very much looking at and we'll see what happens. I wonder, there is this potential that I've been thinking about that with all the limitations that come with the traditional blockbuster touring exhibition of physical arts, super high insurance premiums, that mean that these institutions need to get massive funding, the shipping and the, the risks of moving these artworks, you know, physical artworks around. For me, I feel really excited by the idea that if you could create 
fantastic content that really was meaningful and really would help people enrich their lives in some way. The fact that a digital medium could mean that actually it could pop up simultaneously across the world, there'd be none of these problems, it, it could really shift the way that we shift our culture. Whether then that is art that becomes something more like design, if it becomes more like a spectacle, is I guess remains to be seen. That remains to be seen, but we also have to think about the fact that these works are incredibly difficult and expensive to install. You're absolutely right. So a touring exhibition in the traditional sense is certainly not the issue here. So the same work could be installed all around the world in different venues, or let's say Super Blue has venues all over the world. The pieces could be seen simultaneously, but they still need to be installed site-specifically with an enormous investment into technology and the artists in all likelihood being there to install and taking care of all of the details. So it isn't a pop-up show that is easy to install. And it will be out of reach from an economic perspective for many uh, institutions. So there is both potential, but there are other issues related to it. And so of these technologies, so we have projection mapping, which is quite dominant in all of this. AR, which is something that you're, you're seeing through a device, which allows to superimpose an image onto, onto reality. And then VR, where you're using a goggles to create a sort of immersive virtual reality experience. Which of these do you think is most potential to A, become affordable for more people to make, make art with it? And for people to experience it more readily and I suppose overall to democratize art. I'm always careful with the term democratizing because as you yourself are indicating that's it's very complex uh, mm-hmm. at what point uh, do you start here is it the accessibility of technologies cost etc so power and agency are always an issue here. Projection mapping is something that is technically very involved and very expensive. If you're talking about, for example, massive outdoor installations. So I would not put that into the area of democratization. There are really interesting aspects to AR. First of all, it's not that expensive to produce AR work. And of course, the beauty of it is that people very easily on their mobile device, be it a phone or a tablet, can access the work through the download of an app, for example. So I think here it's the the reach of the technology that is interesting. And there are also artist groups such as Manifest AR who have invaded art contexts. For example, they did a show, We AR, We Are at MoMA, where they installed, quote-unquote, augmented reality works within the Museum of Modern Art in New York without um, the institution's knowledge, although the institution learned of it and went with it, to basically do a form of institutional critique within the museum itself. And they did another intervention at the Venice Biennale, creating 
virtual pavilions that commented on exclusion, for example. So that aspect of AR, I also find very interesting. You can intervene into prominent narratives. I think VR is becoming more and more affordable now. The price of uh, headsets is going down. I have no doubt that this will be one of the areas of digital art that will become more prominent, specifically with social VR, which is now only beginning to take off. And the idea that multiple people can log into a space and a work and interact with each other from remote locations is really fascinating, I think. And that certainly entails increased access to a piece. So interesting to hear about all of this. About the AR project that you mentioned, could you give us an example of what they actually put into MoMA, which created an institutional critique? Yeah, when I talk about institutional critique in this context, it is more the act itself of putting work into an institution visible to everyone and basically sidestepping the gatekeepers. So it was not that the artworks in and of themselves were um, a form of institutional critique visually, but it was the fact that they were placed next to Jasper Johns or you name it, like prominent modernist uh, artists is shown at uh, MoMA. And then these virtual overlays by the artists involved in the collective right next to them. It was more a questioning of hierarchies and of access and of institutional narrative that added that component. So sort of basically enacting the dream exhibition that these artists have been dreaming about when they think about who they wish they could have their art next to. It, I love it. It makes so much sense. I wonder if also there's, a, there's definitely a potential for this to be a form of activism if you were to place these objects into, say, political buildings or, or spaces with loaded cultural meaning. Absolutely. And AR has, of course, been used a lot by activists also in protests. So... We've talked about what tools have the most potential out of the tools for creating, uh, I suppose, experience-based digital arts. Meanwhile, this year has seen a craze for NFT arts, which I have to ask you about because there are so few experts who truly have an opinion that I want to hear about this. What do you think? What's your take? Is this something that's going to stick around? Is this something we should be following? What about the art itself that's on these platforms? Yeah, I think all of us in the digital art world were puzzled by seeing this craze develop. And I think it is really unfortunate right now that the art world has to ride the coattails of crypto entrepreneurs um, trying to figure this all out. So there are great aspects to NFTs. There are very problematic aspects to it. So first of all, dialing back a little bit, it's not that non-fungible tokens per se are a new thing or that the tokenization of artwork is a new thing. In 2014, Kevin McCoy and Neil Dash participated in Seven on Seven, an event 
that is organized by Rhizome at the new museum. And they actually proposed what you would now call NFTs. At the time, they called it monetized graphics. And I was really taken by their presentation and saw a lot of potential in this, in that tokens basically replacing the certificate of authenticity that artwork is typically sold and acquired with and could potentially have a lot of interesting embedded stipulations, resale rights for artists, really getting to the conservation and preservation of work. So I thought this all had great potential. And we saw then over the past decades also interesting crypto art emerging. And what I mean by crypto art is art that is really conceptually engaging with the tokenization of an artwork. And then comes the NFT craze. And there are several problems with this. One big problem I have is that so-called NFT art has really diluted the understanding of what digital art is. We talked about this so much right now in terms of VR, AR, installations. If you think about Lorna or Lillian Schwartz's films, those are very complex artworks. They're not JPEGs or little animated GIFs. So NFT art is really just a slice of what digital art is, and it's mostly images or animated GIFs or little movie clips compared to very complex pieces. So I think so-called NFT art, first of all, has created kind of a misunderstanding of what digital art is. The huge potential of NFTs is that they could potentially replace the certificate of authenticity once again in a more sophisticated way. The problem here being is that the current smart contracts really do not fulfill that promise. And many artists and stakeholders right now are working on better versions of it. Another super problematic aspect of NFTs is the environment, the carbon footprint. And the issue of sustainability. We're really working on reducing carbon footprints, getting rid of fossil fuels. And here are the next technologies we're creating that really increase that footprint. Many people have said that NFTs have been singled out, unfortunately, um, here, which I agree with to some extent, because if you look at uh, AI and the impact it has on the environment, that's also absolutely substantial and even more so than NFTs. But I think we really have to do something about it. There are currently two different versions, basically, of authenticating transactions on the blockchain. One is proof of work, where basically the whole network of computers and machines is crunching data and working on this. And then the proof of stake, which basically mints or creates NFTs by and through the highest stakeholders. And that is environmentally a little bit more sustainable. 
So artists have really been trying to use proof-of-stake platforms for this. But that's yet another issue that we need to address. So my prediction here is that the craze surrounding NFTs will hopefully die down substantially, but the good aspects of them will stick and will be further developed. Once again, there is potential, but right now it's a very, very messy landscape. And I suppose with all of this, it's just so important to remember that I think the sort of non-creating public, so I'm including art enthusiasts as well as art dealers and curators, can get very distracted by money in terms of that with all this crypto flying around and this sudden feeling that there's a gold rush that everyone's missing out on. I think it can be very distracting. And when this whole thing started, I think probably in March, there was this big wave of media attention. I had phone calls from artist friends asking me, how can I make an NFT? I don't know what to do, but I feel like I'm so behind. And this and this sense of suddenly feeling like we've got to jump on this train now or it's never going to happen when actually this is a process and we're going to use them properly and what's appropriate. And I'm sure that there will be a fantastic artist who will use this as a medium and will make something wonderful as, as always happens. But it doesn't have to always be stuff that's being made right now is going to be the stuff that's going to make the stream. It, I absolutely agree with you. And once um, again, the crypto art that we have seen over the past eight years has been much more interesting that than many of the NFT works that are currently flooding the market. And I would not recommend to any artist to just mindlessly jump into this. NFTs won't go away. And I think it's much, much better to approach this thoughtfully and really work with experts, develop contracts that make sense and uh, set an example. It's also unavoidable that the current market will crash quite a bit. Many gallerists are telling me that they're selling NFTs by artists for much, much higher prices than the much more complex other works these artists have created. And that, of course, is problematic. You know, and the market has to balance out again. I guess it is problematic. I suppose on another perspective, I have an artist friend who has been interested in this field for a long time and made NFTs five years ago when it was all starting, while also he had some NFTs already on the super rare platform before all this media happened. He sold so well that it gave him a kind of financial freedom and confidence that I have never seen it. It was so incredible to see that. With what you just um, brought up, you know, I found it sad that so many artists mindlessly jumped on this, but at the same time, they also need to support their practice. Mm -hmm. And this is where the money is right now. So I also wouldn't criticize them for this. But I think this is really just market economy that people have this idea of, rarity and mm. certification and it takes off while there's nothing new about it absolutely not yeah yeah it's, it's so it's issue just like public confidence right um, exactly that's what it's all about i guess with the whole nft thing also like obviously i'm into the idea of collecting digital art i think it's great but the display angle is still not really there like, i don't particularly want to have an lcd screen in my house 
with moving images. I think it'd be super distracting. I've got enough screens in my life. Yeah, but that's also, I don't know, there are so many platforms that have been doing that, like Sedition, etc., which has an advantage where you, you basically have your vault and then it cycles through those clips. It's like having video art. So just the fact of that also, it doesn't make sense to me from a collector's perspective. It's just psychologically super interesting what is happening here and yeah. puzzling that, wow, now you're spending tons of money <laughs> on JPEGs. It makes me wonder as well, my, my feeling is also that there's a lot of newly minted crypto billionaires who might see their money as monopoly money and that it's not really real. The, the, the crypto that they're spending maybe isn't so consequential as cold hard dollars, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, and of course, for people like Matt Cohen, who bought the people, this was pure also market entrepreneur strategy of driving it. There are a lot of people who have an investment into pushing crypto and these platforms. So the art world is also partly being abused for that. Okay. So we've discussed NFTs. I think I think it's super interesting and it's something we'll keep revisiting and, and we're all going to watch closely to see what happens. On that note, with the arrival of this newfangled thing, which actually has been around for a few years, but in most people's minds is very new, it raises this very important quality about digital art is that because digital art is so linked with technology, there is always newness and new innovation to be aware of and to integrate with as an artist. And as a result, it can mean that actually digital art from 10 years ago can feel very dated as obsolescence moves. What advice would you give to a young digital artist who is about to start their career and might be hesitant about embracing new technology for fear that these things will become nostalgic? I would tell them not to worry about it too much. I think I absolutely agree with you that the obsolescence cycle is much, much faster and work looks dated faster. But is that a bad thing? So Worksner, for example, who was a pioneer of net art, they are still regarded as absolutely groundbreaking and beautiful works. And I still love looking at them. They have a certain kind of patina because you saw them in, a, in an old legacy browser on Netscape. But their beauty is still there. And I think if you create it, conceptually powerful work or visually beautiful work, that remains, even if there is a certain kind of data to it. We're looking at paintings that are hundreds of years old, and there is certainly a datedness to their representational frame and context, but we still enjoy them. And I think the same is true for digital art. What is a little bit more problematic is, of course, just the conservation aspect of it. It's not only looking dated, but it's also <laughs> vanishing, literally. So I think we by now have really best practices when it comes to preserving digital artworks. To me, it's a much, much bigger issue that they aren't collected enough, meaning there aren't the stakeholders who make a commitment to preserving the work. It's less about the technical challenges of doing it 
than the commitment of collecting the work. Some artists I wanted to mention also have brilliantly built the data into the work itself. Corey Archangel, for example, mm. has done that with some of his work, particularly the Photoshop filter-based images, which are presented as these gigantic, super high-end prints, but they're ultimately images that everybody could make at home if they would execute the title of the piece within Photoshop using the gradient uh, tool. But he specifically made them so high-end that their datedness would be underscored, basically. So he thought about that from the start. I'm not saying that artists should do that, but it was for him a built-in commentary on obsolescence. It's interesting that you bring up his Photoshop gradient works because I saw the, some of them in person, actually, in London, Phillips, a couple of years ago. And the scale he uses and the quality of thick paper and the sort of super high-end photographic print, maybe it will start to look like a comment on super high-end photography in the art market in the 2000s, in a sense, because that is going to be what it represents at the end of the day. And I read them as a little bit more cynical, as being an attempt to make digital art fit into the art market, rather than a comment on the art market and actually inserting this thing knowing full well exactly what is going to fly. That's a really interesting perspective. And it's the artist's perspective. I curated show of his work at the Whitney, so I know for a fact that he is really playing it and is very well aware of it. And I remember him um, saying, these are not going to age very well, <laughs> precisely for the reasons you're outlining. <laughs> so thank you so much for giving us your time on this and your perspective. It is so valuable. Could you tell us a little bit more? Have you got any upcoming projects? Are you creating some shows? Have you got some books coming out that we can read? Oh, yes, I'm actually working on the next edition, the fourth edition of Digital Art, which should come out next year. So I keep updating it and it keeps getting translated. I'm always working on new projects for the Whitney's Artport website. So there are four of them coming up every year. And I also curated version 4.0 of Demoda, the Digital Museum of Digital Art, which is a VR museum. So those should roll out hopefully over the course of the next year too. Yeah, big thanks for the opportunity. It was really nice talking to you. Thank you. I think this is great.